Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Burris. Our guest this week calls herself a lawyer-turned-fun-entrepreneur. Her name is Sarah Davidson, perhaps better known on social media as Spoonful of Sarah. In 2014, Sarah was working in a law firm when she started a side hustle with her now-husband, Nick, a matcha tea business called Matcha Maiden. Within just a few months, they were inundated with so many orders that Sarah quit her job as a lawyer and went to work on the business full-time. But over the past few years, Sarah's personal brand has become a focus with her Instagram page, Spoonful of Sarah, attracting over 70,000 followers. And she's also got a podcast of her own now called Seize the A and a book of the same name coming out in August this year. I'm going to ask Sarah about how growing up as a ballerina and a, a good student and all the hard work that goes into doing that taught her the discipline she needed to be able to take control of her time and pivot her ideas into new forays over and over again. She's only young. She's got a whole lot of businesses doing very, very well. It's a fascinating discussion. So let's get into it. Sarah, welcome to The Mentor. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. Now, this is pretty complex. I've been reading the brief. We've got lots of things going on here. One of you, I, I, I guess the first thing I want to ask you, I mean, obvious question is that, or obvious to me anyway, is um, <laughs> I've got matcha tea business. I've got Sarah, the host and or of her own podcast. I've got Sarah, who's was a lawyer. I've got Sarah, who goes out and does talks and talks to people about uh, what sees the A or something like that. Is that mm-hmm. well, that's your podcast? What's, yes. what's your, what do you go by when you do your talks? Oh, same thing. Same, same thing. philosophy. <laughs> so I, I guess I don't, I don't really know where to start. There's that much stuff going on. Um, <laughs> so let me just I, – I, I tell you where I want to start. I want to, go, I want to go right back. I mean, you're only a young girl, but I want to go right back, say, when you're 15 years of age. Mm-hmm. Paint me a picture. Who was Sarah then? And where oh, was she? Where, were you, where are you from? You were from Melbourne or Perth or Sydney? Where are you from? Tell me the story. Yeah, so Melbourne girl. Melbourne girl. I was actually born in South Korea. Yep. Adopted from an orphanage, six months old, no memory of it. So I've grown up a completely white country bumpkin Australian that just happens to look 100% Asian, which is a great, unique cultural identity to grapple with. Uh, But grew up in Melbourne, beautiful family. Uh, We had, you know, rural connections kind of on both sides. So lived in the city, but had country roots. And I think this 
you know, ongoing theme of doing lots of different things and pursuing lots of different interests has been around since I was a kid. So I was very active at school. I did lots of sport, lots of music. I also had a career as a ballerina. So around 15, that's probably what I was doing. Like I was at school and then rushing off to ballet and then trying to fit in training and around 15. Training, was, training, ballet training. Yeah, ballet training. So I was with the um, Australian Ballet School. And I think 15 was around the time where I'd hit my first big crossroads in life. It was that first decision of two big passions becoming mutually exclusive and having to face that decision. What were they? What were the two big passions that became mutually exclusive? So ballet had become full-time. Like my next logical step was to, to leave school, but then my academic side and the side of me that loved to stimulate the brain muscles and really flex, you know, all that kind of maths and sciences and exploring, you know, the academic side of my personality, that was also quite strong. And I hit this point at 15 where I realised this ballet career was either going to be a forever decision to the exclusion of most other options, or I was going to continue and um, finish school and then see what happened from there. How is it some parents get perfect kids? What the <laughs> fuck? I mean, like uh, your, your parents have adopted you out of South Korea um, and uh, you've turned up, you've obviously been a good kid. Well, it seems that way anyway. Oh, we've missed a whole chapter. But okay, that's well, well, <laughs> well, that's the part I want to get into. No, no, no. We, we, and uh, but at fifteen, you're 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 doing ballet now. You know, but I, I know happen a little bit about uh, people who do ballet, both boys and girls. When I grew up in my street, the girls living next door to me were, were the Birchmores, one of which was Rhonda Birchmore. Who happened to be looking at on uh, Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, but it was the first time I watched it last night. Oh. Rhonda's in that. She was about that, and her and her sister did ballet. Up the road was a kid who, a boy, Kim Reader, who actually went into the uh, Royal German Ballet. He was in the German Ballet. And across the road from that was uh, Amanda Clark, who was in the Royal Australian Ballet, Australian Royal Ballet, whatever it's called. And uh, I remember something from that period of my life about these two girls and one boy doing ballet was it's incredibly disciplined at that level as opposed to just going to ballet classes. Yeah. At that level, <laughs> at 15, if you're still doing ballet, it's incredibly Disciplined. The parents are incredibly disciplined in order to get the girl or the boy to um, be competitive, so to speak, or to be able to hold their own. Yeah. To get into these various ballet schools, there was a lot of pain involved. Sore feet, sore toes. <laughs> lots of broken. Lots broken of broken toes. toes, like bruised toes, <laughs> bleeding toes. Uh, and when you say you glibly said training, um, the training regime is uh, horrendous. Like it's all the time. It's it's all around. The whole family revolves its life around that particular kid's training. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, so, that, and as you say it, I'm like, oh god, I was a terrible child. <laughs> I consumed my whole family. Around well, my you career. would have been a good kid otherwise. They wouldn't have, <laughs> they wouldn't have done it. But like, uh, because it's the least rewarding thing you can do as a parent, to be honest with you, because there's nothing in it for the parents other than watching their kid flourish and blossom. So mm. it's the least rewarding thing like for the parent themselves other than as a viewer. Yeah. So there must be something in your parents that they taught you, either that or it's, you know, genetically in you either way or both. Um, do you, what do you think about that in terms of that being a contributor to your ability today to carry three or four things at once? Yeah, I think having the ongoing support of parents who never pressure you in one particular direction but and who actively encourage you to explore lots of different things but not only encourage you to do that but then follow through by facilitating it and making it possible by driving you everywhere and buying you the stuff something you totally take for granted at that time that that's their money and time that they're spending on you at the time you're like of course like I'm your child mm. I think 
But they don't have to. That, that, absolutely That's something not. they don't have to do. They yeah. could say, listen, let's give that away and do basketball and yeah, play basketball. totally. And I, I think growing up in an environment where I was never pressured one way or the other, like some ballet parents are quite intense. My parents were more following my lead in, in getting way overexcited and intense about everything like I do. And I think that definitely set me up really well for the attitude that I have now, which is just to continuously explore every different side of my personality, whether I end up being terrible at something or good at it. I love to try that out in practice. And it's their guidance definitely that allowed that kind of uh, open-mindedness, that ability to push through the fear of looking silly or... um, Did you ever think that? Uh... I, I suppose I did at one point, but I think because they got us used to trying things from scratch from so young. And I think also because they d- a lot of people are always like, you know, with the whole law degree and leaving and moving into business, people are like, you know, did your parents give you a really hard time looking at me thinking I've got tiger parents sitting behind me who are like, you need to do medicine or law. And I'm sort of like, oh, I kind of skipped that whole thing. I've got white, Asian, you know, white Caucasian country bumpkin parents who never pressured me towards law or medicine. They have always been very, very encouraging of doing more than one thing and I think that's definitely carried through. It's one part nurture and one part nature. I think it's a bit of both. Did you have, did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, so a younger sibling, he's four years younger, adopted from the same orphanage, different biological family but same birthday. So lots of weird synergies there. And can I, I mean, just out of interest, because um, I'm, I'm always intrigued by this sort uh, of um, the genetics coming in, the genetic impact that has a way someone conducts themselves as opposed to the, the the nurturing that surrounds them, plus the opportunities. But is your brother similar to you? Uh, total opposite. Total opposite. Yeah. He's just chilled. He's super chilled. He's very one-dimensional. He's just happy to coast and he's just not interested in travel. Like all the things that light me up and all the ways that I love to you know, stretch my mind and always be uncomfortable and always be like seeking new opportunities. He's just like, I'm good. I'm just I'm just chill, happy to, you know, enjoy my creature comforts and why would I go anywhere where things are uncomfortable and foreign? So we're, we're polar opposites with very similar parenting. So I think one part of it is, you know, the mindset or the, the you know, emotional composition that you're born with. But then on the other, on the other hand, we did get all the same, you know, we did have very similar childhoods in that we were both encouraged to do lots of different things and he just decided for whatever reason that he was happy to just choose one thing. And so I think that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's one thing that's really informed that whole idea of CCA and finding your joy and being able to own whatever that looks like, whether it's what other people think is exciting and fulfilling or whether it's what you think. I think he's been a really strong inspiration for me of he just chooses one way, but he's extraordinarily happy. And even though it's not what I think would make me happy, I've had to just accept that that's his his happiness and his fulfilment. And but is this, well, can I ask you because when I, I sort of go through when I was younger, at least I used to struggle with this a little bit myself. But exploring lots of things all the time is that because generally speaking, well, I'll put it to you: is that because nothing really makes you happy for long enough? I mean, <laughs> yeah, get, that's an really interesting bored? question. I think I definitely worried that that was. Is it an affliction or is it an advantage? I or is it one of those afflictions that you've taken control of and you turn it into an advantage? What is that, it? That, yeah, the latter, absolutely. I think it's one of those things that in my younger years was just indecision and uh, overwhelm at how many opportunities there were. And Overthinking all the opportunities? Absolutely, yeah. and not wanting to miss out on anything and wanting to make sure I, I think, you know, being adopted, even though I'm not conscious of it all the time because I don't have, you know, memories of 
the life that I would have had, it does make you very appreciative of every opportunity, which for me has rubbed off in this like intense need to make the most of everything. Uh, for my brother has maybe not translated the same way, but for me it's it's almost made me guilty to not explore those kind of opportunities. Uh, and then I did worry, you know, when I left the law firm, I thought, am I just bored? Like, am I being a millennial that just doesn't want to work hard? And I've got to the point of the career where yeah, it's Yeah, jumping not, around the joint. Yeah, like the novelty's worn off. And I really had to sit down and think, if I'm doing it for that reason, then it's not a good reason to leave. If I'm doing it because I've explored all parts of my personality and I'm willing to let go of the should to pursue something a little bit risky, but that's... The should it. to pursue the could. Yeah, then that's okay with me. And okay, I, this is a really good thing because, uh, I mean, I, I, I see lots of people, I don't know, how old are you at 20, 30, what are you? Yeah, I'm actually 60. Okay. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> My age. So now how, no, it's, uh, it's the Asian genes, I'm 30. Uh, yeah, 30, okay. So, so um, there's a lot of people in your age category, whether they're called millennials or whatever they're called, I don't know, but um, they get accused of jumping around the place and not being able to make a, a decision and just run with it. Equally, in my time when I was your age, um, I would say people my age didn't go and explore enough things. They just got got, got put on a, a process or a cycle and they just stayed on it and never got off it mm. and they're still doing the same shit they're always doing. And mm. to me that was boring. But what I'd like to know, if, uh, you know from your point of view is um, do you think that you ever overthink your environment or do you think that's worked for you and as a result of that – you'll continue to do that. In other words, you'll move away from the accusation and, and just run with it. Keep yeah. overthinking it, keep overanalyzing it. When do you get to a point where you say, okay, I'm going to let that go. My law degree, nice steady job, always get paid well, eventually become a partner. I've got, <laughs> got a kid over here who's my intern, whose dad's a lawyer, he's doing a law degree, he's my intern. Exactly the profile of... Is that right, Lockie? Exactly Lockie's profile. Uh, what point do you – he's probably always challenging himself, shit, should I go and do what my dad did and become a barrister? Or do I – Break the mould. and Do something totally different <laughs> yeah, that I really yeah. want to do. I mean, because everyone's confronted with this stuff in your in your age category right now. It's, a, yeah. it's confronting. It's a tough one. I think it's very, very hard in this time to distinguish between that boredom cycle and needing instant gratification, but then on the other hand just being – part of a very fast-paced society where you're not expected to have one career. It's a very fine line and I constantly have to check in with myself. When do you jump though? When do you jump? When do you jump? When did you say, fuck the law degree, I'm going to move, um, um, the law, uh, the law um, career, I'm out of here. I'm going to yeah. go do something different for myself. And what was the risk involved too, by the way? Yeah, so okay. It was a very, very delicate mix of overthinking and underthinking. I think you kind of need a bit of both. Mm. And Then jump. And then, and then underthink it and just jump. Mm. And for me, it was, I always make decisions based on what is the once in a lifetime opportunity. In most cases, one will be more, um, more able to be got, you know, reverted back to if things go wrong. And so you one, had a fallback position? I had a fallback. So right, I, okay. I think like the way I make decisions is firstly, you have to minimise the risk in your mind so that it doesn't overwhelm you because otherwise all decisions will feel too overwhelming for you to you ever nothing. take a step. Mm. But secondly, you need to be able to, um, yeah, minimise the risk in your mind in a way that makes it easier for you to take that jump. So I got to the point where I'd started the business. It had gone really well for six months. 
I'd kind of been hedging my bets and so had my start again, foot. start again. So you started which 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 of the businesses? So now? started the matcha business. So the matcha tea and the matcha products. Yep, you, that so was, it was a, like a side hustle. Total side hustle. So you're working in law firm day today. Yep. And by the way, what were you twenty? Yeah, twenty five. Okay, so they'd be working your ass off. Yep. So you'd be doing massive fucking hours. Like, like, All I, my spare time I was running a business. So, and then on the side you're doing uh, the hustle, yep. which was side hustle, which is your matcha tea, which is what running a website, some stuff on um, social media, yep. selling the product through the social media back to the website, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Yeah. And you built your own website? Yep, we built it. And my, what was that called again? Sorry. So Matcha Maiden was the first Match, business. Matcha Maiden? Yep. Okay, so you had a product, built the website, um, banged it out through social media on the side while she worked in a law firm. Yes. And did the, did any of the partners or your direct report ever say to you, what the fuck are you doing here? So no early? one knew. No one knew. Okay. No, very okay, on the so download. You, so totally. So you're on the download, you ran it sort of undercover. Yep. Okay, cool. And uh, and then it, it was probably costing you money in the beginning. Well, it's interesting. So that's the other thing. I kind of always say like dream big but plan small and do things in the, you know, bootstrap it to the point where – you can actually make it feasible and you can conceive of it in your mind and not be too scared to start, but also grow into it. And because it was only ever meant to be a, a hobby, you know, my husband and I... He oh, was, so you meant it to be a hobby? It was meant to be a hobby. It was right. purely because I had burnt myself out to adrenal fatigue, was banned from coffee and then found matcha as this healthy caffeination that, I don't know how, that the East had been on to for centuries and the West that was, you know, uh, the West really hadn't kind of figured out the health benefits of this amazing product and we couldn't find it in Australia. So it was a very selfish gap closing business. And uh, my husband, he has a creative agency and he knocked out the website. Like it was very DIY. I did all the socials and, uh, you know, we did the labels together and it just started because we wanted it for ourselves. So you're running this side hustle. You've you've done it, you bootstrapped it. So you've done it on not much money involved. Um, So low risk. Low risk. It's a no-brainer then. It's, yeah. Uh, and also it sort of was something you were personally interested in and you were getting the benefits of it anyway and you just sort of, well, if it fucking takes off, it takes off. Yeah, and if okay. it doesn't, whatever. No one Who will Who gives a shit? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So and the reason you kept it on the down low is because you just thought, well, I'm just going to protect my reputation just in case it is a failure. And also I was like, I'm using firm resources for all of my research. Like I probably yeah, yeah. should keep this quiet until yeah, yeah, I figure yeah, out whether yeah. it's actually worth it. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And yeah. uh, so this is like five, four, five years ago, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, five okay. years. Okay, so and how long did you say to yourself I'm going to give myself for this? Because you would have got challenged at some stage with uh, the tea business, the matcha yeah. tea business, um, matcha maiden. You would have said at some – this still exists, matcha maiden? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So matcha maiden, you would have gone, oh, should I give it 12 months? Did you at any stage during that period, you know, month five, six, seven, eight, you and your husband say – my God, this is shit, let's get out, or were you challenged or it was good from day one? It was great timing. I think a combination of, uh, you know, good timing in the fact that the matcha boom that happened in like around 2016 hadn't happened. Yeah, but, I bought it. Not yours, sure but, but I bought it. I still got it in the cupboard. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the boom hadn't just hadn't happened, but the appetite was there. So yep. we were not too early and we weren't too late and we just happened to be able to knock it up really quickly. And with a target market. So all of those, like it's a combination of luck and hard work. And I think that meant that from the very beginning, we already had people wanting it. There was already a gap. So there was a rising tide, demand. Rising tide, no other players. Yep. So for the whole first six months, it was just exponential growth that we really couldn't handle. So what were we doing, packing the tea at night? Or yeah. Were, yeah. It was a 
Breaking Bad situation, green yeah. powder everywhere, like sort of in our Is it grey or green? It's green. It's green, bright green. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah. like uh, Breaking Still Bad. Well, not, powder though. For those who are listening, <laughs> I mean, I hope not really. Sarah was not really doing a Breaking Bad moment. But yeah, that, I was not dealing drugs, but yeah. it sounded like it. You yeah, know, yeah. like talking about bags and grams and like calling people in my two phones. And then, and so the matcha, so matcha made in the, the, your two matcha products, have you? So matcha, uh, the product range is there's about eight SKUs. Right. And then Matcha Milk Bar is the physical outlet that opened about two years ago. Is that later. yours? Did you, do you manufacture this milk bar yourself? Uh, so Milk Bar is a, like a plant-based vegan venue. It's, oh, Chris, it's a venue. It's not yeah, actually it's a, a venue. bar. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's uh, Chris Hemsworth's favourite cafe in Australia, which is pretty exciting. Is that in Byron Bay? No, it's actually Melbourne. Melbourne. So when he comes okay, down so for the me, footy. Because okay, we're going to go over the break, but just before we go to the break, I want to know, um, know one thing from you. What was that moment like when you, you and your husband said – Okay, Sarah, you're leaving the law firm. You're gonna, we're gonna run this matcha business full time. Yeah. What happened? What was the night? What was the day? What happened? When did you say, "Fuck it, I'm jumping"? Yeah, it was the day that they became mutually exclusive. Again, the same thing that the ballet and the school, you know, crossroads moment of we got a big contract from Urban Outfitters in the states. We realised we couldn't fulfil it unless one of us went full time to actually pack the volume. Uh, and realised, you know, if we if I walk away from law, I've got a good reputation, I'm qualified, I could probably go back. Hmm. I, I'm and on, you're young enough. And I'm young enough, you know. Uh, and financially, like, we'd, we'd had time to save. We'd been planning for six months, you know, what might happen. But I could never go back to starting a business at that time when we were first to market and we had the momentum. And I, I think it seemed scary and overwhelming and, and terrifying, but actually it made sense. Actually, there was no other option. So people out there listening to you right now who've got their side hustle up to a point where they've got to do the bungee jump, Yeah. Um, what would you say to them? I would say you're never going to feel ready, but start before you're ready because you'll never be able to know how good it could be unless you actually go there. And can I ask ask you what would you say to those same people who who, um, are thinking about starting a law degree or a degree of any type? for further education, um, is it important that they go about that business, continue to do their degree and get qualified or do you think they should never bother getting qualified and just go out and do their thing they're passionate about in the first place? I think if you have found your passion and you already know what lights you up and you know that you've got the ability to actually make it financially viable and to not be destitute, (laughs) then go for it. But most of us graduate school and then graduate uni having no idea where we want to go. And there's something to be said for just biding your time. I wouldn't, if I had tried to start this business without my law degree, I'd be five years younger or six years younger, no work experience, no understanding of the world. And I needed that time to learn, to learn who I am, what I'm good at, what I like, what I don't like. And I couldn't have had a better foundation than the studies that I did, even though most of the time it's not directly relevant. So I would say definitely Go and do your degree. Go and do something to give you a platform and to give you time to figure out who you are. Something to suit your personality. Because if, if yeah. you're worried, that means your personality saying, maybe I should go and step it out in a few more baby steps as opposed to just jumping straight off. Absolutely. And and uh, my final thing before we go to the break, sorry about this. <laughs> sorry for all you listeners, you've got to put up with this. But for me, that is, um, uh, uh, how important to you is having a partner involved? Uh, not necessarily a your husband, but like a partner? Mm, It's a very, very hard one. I think finding the right business partner is one of the toughest things and I've heard of many stories that haven't worked out, but at the same time... But in in helping you make those decisions, I mean... It's crucial. It has been a make or break for us, particularly because 
it's so scary to put yourself out there. But when you've sort of sh- together, you're sharing the load, you're sharing the burden of everything, you're sharing the, the stress of making decisions, you're sharing the risk of it looking, stu- you know, failing and you're looking silly. Well, you both fail, both look silly. <laughs> yeah. But also I think, you know, one person can't be everything. You can't mm-hmm. be everything in a business. And if you can find someone that fills all your gaps and that you do the same for them, it's just going to bring a wealth and depth of experience and perspectives to your business that you can't bring yourself. So kind of diversifying in skills and personalities is, is I think, really wonderful if you can find the right partner. And, and I guess it saves a lot of money too and or, mm. and or learning because you don't have to do that shit yourself, particularly in your case if, yeah. if your husband's in the creative side of things and yeah, uh, he yeah. knows how to build these things as well. Yeah, I kept him around for a reason. Yeah, well, <laughs> you married him for a reason. He's super smart. No, no, I'm just joking. But, but like, but that, that, I think that's an important part too mm. because you got to have something. Some you can't do everything. It, you might be really good at, you know, A to K, but the rest of the alphabet, you're not going to be good at A to Z. And business is really isolating. I think going from a, a team structure of corporate where you have a very clear hierarchy of if something goes wrong, this is who you ask, or that's the person who you're going to learn from to I have no mentors, no office buddies, no colleagues, you're working by yourself, to have someone in it with you from the beginning means that you never face that, you know, crisis of confidence that you do when you're by yourself. There's always someone to lift you up or when one of you is down or, you know, stressed or overwhelmed, the other one's full of enthusiasm and excitement. Like it's there's this entrepreneurial cycle of I'm shit, I'm great, I'm shit, I'm great, I'm shit, I'm great. Mm. Like you kind of, you need that person to bounce that energy off to pull you out of those moments where you just don't believe it's going to work. Because I think if, you, if you're if you so sure that something's going to work, like it's one in a million. Most people at the start of their business really have no idea if it's going to go well. There's a lot of risk, there's a lot of uncertainty, but that's the nature of going into business. That's why it's exciting. But having a partner means that there's always someone to pick you up in those moments and make sure you don't topple yourself and kind of you know, eliminate yourself from the race before you even begin. 100%. I always have partners in my business, always. Um, That's interesting. Business partners. Every time, every business I've done, I've had business partners. Mm. Here with Sarah Davidson, actually used to be called Sarah Holloway, and um, she's from Matcha Maiden and various other places like called Seize the A, etc., which is your podcast, yeah? Sure is. Okay. Well, <laughs> we're doing a podcast. Let's talk about your podcast. Um, how did you start doing a podcast? Was it there to supplement your matcha business or was it just something you decided to do? It's really interesting. You know how we were talking about that millennial boredom and <laughs> whether you know the distinction between whether or not you're bored or whether or not you're just entering a new phase of challenge. Yeah, I think I think it's curious. I like to prefer <laughs> to call myself curious. I had, you know, we'd been running the matcha businesses for, so Matcha Maiden had been four years and the cafe Matcha Milk Bar was about two. And I'd suddenly gone from having this very independent career in law that had a very clear trajectory and that I could kind of direct in different directions, go diplomacy or travel or M&A or whatever I wanted to very food-focused businesses that were using definitely a dominant side of my personality, but the people side of my personality was getting sort of pushed to the back. The bigger the businesses got, the further I was removed from the customer and that like immediate relationship and reaction. And I think as I have de- you know developed and as I have learned to explore my strengths and my weaknesses and not just be on this conveyor belt of I should be doing this because I'm semi-good at it, not because you know, there's lots of other things that I could do. I Once I started to inquire about what I'm good at and what I'm not, I realized the people bit is my favorite. That's the bit that I love. It's the bit that I feel 
you know, invigorates me and, you know, the guests. Like I love having chats with people and bringing out the best in them and helping them explore what makes them excited and, and break. If they're on an autopilot circuit, I want people to break that for themselves as well. And I realised there was no way inside the businesses to bring that people element more into my job. Necessarily, I was moving away from that. So how else could I find that? And I think that's become a big project of mine is to always look at your life holistically and figure out all the things you need and make sure you're getting them, whether it's from one thing or the other, as long as you're getting all those ingredients, you know, you're going to be living a happy and fulfilled life. And I just thought, you know, I want to chat to people more. I want to share stories that are exciting. I want, you know, to to share the the journey and show everyone that your pathway or what I now call your path yay, because I love lame puns, you know, it's always going to involve lots of steps that don't necessarily make sense at the time. But looking back, you can connect all the dots and realize everything was leading you to where you want to go. But the people that you hear from now who are successful and happy and love their lives, you often don't hear all the steps or the 10 years, you know, it's an overnight success, 10 years in the making. You don't hear that stuff that much. So it can be really sort of discouraging when you're in that lost phase trying to find inspiration of how to get out of it. I thought, how can I help people in that phase where I was and how can I deliver what I would have wanted when I was at that crossroads phase? And the podcast just came by a process of elimination. How do I justify chatting with cool people? <laughs> Start a podcast. Mm. And just the same as, you know, everything that's happened in every business, I think law was a very planned, overthinking, organised, annular retentive OCD side of myself. Business had encouraged me to be the complete opposite just buy the equipment and like throw myself into it, like force myself to take the steps and figure it out as I go. And I think that's been the most positive change for me and not needing to overthink every decision because it allows you to be agile. It allows you to start stuff and not agonize for a year about how to learn how to do audio editing and all that stuff. I just kind of bought the stuff. And then it was like, oh, I've got to use it now because I bought it. <laughs> and and when you do a podcast, it's more about, it's not, there's no product really involved. It's more the product. Well, there is. The product is you, mm. your conversation, your content. Mm. Um, do you use that in any way to promote the match of business though? No, I, I think I needed them to be separate. I had business partners in both match of businesses. So we, um, Nick and I run match of maiden. And then we have two brothers who are good friends of ours in the hospitality business. And I didn't have anything that was completely injecting my whole personality into it. And also that was feminine because I had – male business partners in the other businesses and I just felt that that was the energy that was lacking. So Do you have a, a partner a business partner in the in the Seize the A no. podcast business. That's you. So that's me. So can you tell me about it? What what do you do there? What is Seize the A about? Yeah, so it's pretty much just based on the idea on really my last 5 to 6 years of transitioning from what I call a Seize the Day mentality, which is that productivity hamster wheel that we all get on that's very based around achievement and success and milestones and financial metrics and, you know, to an extent that's really important but I think when it becomes the totality of how you decide where you're next going in your life, it becomes increasingly separated from what makes you happy and people end up, you know, as a partner in a law firm but they've never actually asked if they want to be there but by then they're kind of stuck and I think that's where the disconnect between where you end up and where you actually wanted to be is what makes people anxious and what, you know, leads to all these kinds of mental illnesses and anxiety and stress is because people never stop. They don't stop along the way. They just get caught up in the momentum of the, like the conveyor belt. And what I have, you know, done by accident is discover that you can interrupt that cycle and just stop and ask, is this where I really want to be? 
And not that we all can have to do what we want and what we enjoy, but is this the best use of my talents and my time on this planet? And for some people, corporate is absolutely that. And if you stop and decide that that makes you happy, then definitely keep going. But it's just, I want to encourage people to stop and ask, am I seizing the day because I think I should? Or am I going after the things that make me really excited and happy and that I, and that I'm good at and that help other people? Like, am I living, I, I don't like saying live my purpose, but am I actually living my purpose or am I living just out of momentum and so habit? So well, give me an example, Sarah. Like, so when you, you get a guest on there, what, what type of guests are you targeting or looking for and what, what do you talk about? How long is your, how long is your podcast for? Is it a 45 so it's a, Yeah, 45 to an hour. 45 to an hour. And, and where, where is it distributed through? Like where do I, how do I get onto it? Is it, is it on so, SoundCloud or? Uh, uh, it's just on Apple, on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, yeah. Stitcher, yeah, iTunes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the idea for me was showing that, which is something I hadn't really acknowledged in the, in the law firm, was that an enlightened and invigorated pathway can look so different. It necessarily looks different for every single person. And I think we get really fooled into thinking that certain pathways are really successful and worthy and others aren't necessarily. So for me, you know, I left corporate to start a business, but I've been at pains to emphasize that that's not the only way to be happy. Like some people love corporate or some people have to, you know, some people are fine with not loving their job, but finding their passion in their hobbies. Some people can't make their hobbies their work because it takes the joy out of it. So the there's no criteria for the guests. It's very much every pathway that you can think of. There's like zoologists, there's emergency services, there's artists, musicians, there's lots of business people, but I try and intersperse that with like, you know, SAS commanders and um, paramedics and nurses and artists and just random life pathways to show that. So it's random. That, but that, very random. But by the way, random is a, is a course of action. But yeah, ra- and it's, it's random on purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Random is, is a process. So random is a process. Yeah. Just like. And to demonstrate straight that. Straight lines are too. You can end up in any life structure and that life structure can make you enormously happy. But. All those people chose to be where they are. What do you get out of it? I think I get an enormous amount of insight from the way that people make decisions in their lives and the the turning point moments where they've stopped kind of just doing what they should and realised they can make choices. They've let go of fear. They've let go of self-doubt. They've let go of, you know, all those limiting beliefs about themselves and just gone ahead and taken a risk and done something. And a lot of a lot of times that is business, but other times it could be just a change of career. And you've wrapped that stuff up though, but you've packaged that up, that sees the A, that, <laughs> that, that, that process. You've packaged that up and you've now take it onto the talk circuit too though. Yes. So it is essentially what you are doing from seize the A, you know, you're enjoying yourself. You, you, you're satisfying your, your curiosity. You're being in touch with people, and you know, and you, you talk, it's random. You're talking all sorts of different types of content. Mm. But you, are you taking from that what you're learning, and then putting it into a nice little package and standing on the stage, and then parlaying that back out to the audience who are there to either be inspired or just to listen and communicate with what you've got to say? Is that sort of is that a an example of um how you have learnt probably from the day you were a little kid to take <laughs> as much out of everything as you possibly can. And I don't mean you're being doing this in a selfish way or a horrible way, but just packaging these things up and then saying, okay, but hang on, I've just learnt this and now I can do that. Mm. Similar to what you've done with the matcha tea. I've got mm. I've done matcha tea, now I've got matcha cafe bar. So 
you know, like it's the second step, the third step, and the fourth step mm. of what was random. Is that an example of that? Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I think so. I think, again, it started as a hobby on the side that wasn't monetized. Like it was very much something that I did to fill a, a personal gap. And then once it got momentum, I was like, oh, wow, like this is becoming quite impactful for the people who are listening, but also for myself. And one of the big conversation areas in every episode that I kind of try to push as the point of difference is that, you know, a half of it kind of focuses on the story and how they professionally got to where they are and how they, you know, made all these decisions and the crossroads and all that kind of thing. But half the other half of the episode is called Play TA, which is separating their doing identity and everything that's productive and achieving and exciting to focus on all the things they do that is outside of their work. And most of the people who are on the show never get asked that stuff. They never have to describe their identity in a way that isn't wrapped up in like what they do or how successful they are. And some of them are quite well known and never get interviewed on these things. So I had um, Gary Vaynerchuk came on the podcast and every question he was like, I've never been asked this before. And that for me is the kind of conversation that broke the circuit when I needed it you know, an insider, when I needed to be shaken out of all we are is our jobs, you know, we are what we do and, you know. How do we define ourselves? How do we define ourselves? Is it by a success metric? Is it financial? Whatever it is. I think my happiest times and my most fulfilled times have been since not measuring myself that way and breaking away from like that corporate mentality and defining myself through things that I love that aren't work and finding out about the pursuits that other people have that they allow in their incredibly busy schedules to make time for play and like fun and to be a person, to just be a human outside of that. I realized that that could spark a lot of change in, you know, speaking context, hearing that other people do stuff outside of their jobs, but that that can be positive for your job because it makes you a better worker. It gives you creativity. It gives you perspective and distance and all those kinds of things. I have my best ideas after I take a break that those kind of messages, I realized they can be packaged into something that can be delivered in lots of different ways. Uh, I just finished like the first um, manuscript, like draft of my book and translating all the messages that I've learned into, into that has again been like another iteration. I think everything happens in iterations and I'm, I'm learning that the podcast was very much like the totality of it until just this year. It's been a year now. And I think around like the 52nd episode, I realized, Ooh, Maybe this next chapter, like I, I agitate for change. I think I never used to, but now I, you know, once every quarter kind of sit down and think, where are things going? Like what's the next iteration? How can I evolve this into something else? And packaging things in a way that's the most impactful for other people, that's definitely become something that I've There's going to be a lot of people listening. You're, you're, got, you're doing what a lot of people dream about. Um, you, know, <laughs> you, you know, you are because particularly in your generation, she's got a law degree, worked in a law firm, she built a product, selling the product, doing that successfully, built a podcast, got a good following, is getting good content, Gary Vee, et cetera. Um, now she's doing, um, you know, talks and uh, obviously getting paid, I presume you're getting paid for the talks. <laughs> yeah. pay, pay. Um, and uh, so like, and giving the law degree away or giving the law uh, job away and um, not, not being sort of part of that, I mean, it's a horrible thing. I mean, I worked in this environment myself, but those, it's a bit, it's a bit of slavery. <laughs> to be honest with you, um, yeah. and uh, <laughs> it sort of is. Um, you know, it's a good slavery, but it's still slavery. Um, and uh, you're you're doing what everybody wishes to do. And question, I mean, it's, it's, it's all very well to say, look, I just did this, I did that. But there is a how to. I mean, I mean, you should write a book on how to. For example, just on your uh, talk 
talk so how you go. I mean, people would say, "Well, hang on, how do I become? How do I become a, a talk person? How do I how do I become a presenter?" People have no idea. I mean, do you go to an agency, ask them to pr- promote you, or do you promote yourself? Do you manage yourself? Do you take calls? Do you pr- do you reach out to organisations who you think might like to have an audience that would like to listen to you, or do you build your own audiences? Um, do you correspond to your audiences? Do you um, have a, a booking agency? Um, mm. Do you put it on your website? Mm. How did you build your talking business? Yeah, the, the talking side... Did you get approached? Side, yeah, the talking side started very reactively. It was just sort of as a byproduct of the businesses starting to go well. We didn't have personal profiles at all at the start. It was very focused on business. I'd come from corporate, Nick had come from tech, like no one really, in and of ourselves, separate to the business, we weren't that interesting, like no one knew what we'd, who we were. And then as the founder stories sort of started to leak as part of the marketing of the business, like this is a small family-run business or that kind of, you know, storytelling part of the marketing, that's how people started to get onto it and then approach us to do, you know, a Q&A. We'd do a Q&A at a, on a panel. And I realised... Both, both of you? Yeah, both of us, sometimes together, sometimes separately. And I think once I realised that I love that. I really love to be able to, you know, it was an e-commerce business. I didn't get to see our customers that often. So to actually like bring that personal element, which as we have now seen is something I I love to make the dominant side of my career. Once I realized that I wanted to do it more, I think it's a combination of making the most of when you're asked, you want to get people to ask you again. So always over delivering and, and being, you know, a pleasure to work with because it's so reputation-based and because a lot of things do happen by word of mouth, uh, I did a lot of free speaking at the beginning when I knew that I really wanted to go hard at it. I was like, I'm going to have to build some kind of trust, reputation. People are going to have to see you speak. A lot of things come by referral because I've seen you speak somewhere else. So, you know, you, you I, I think a lot of people kind of aim for something and they go, I want to be a paid speaker. So they try and jump to paid speaker. But like anything, it's baby steps. The whole first year was almost all free gigs. And I'm talking like I would pay to travel to things because of the exposure or because of the experience. And you don't even know what your keynote's going to be at the start because you've never spoken for 40 minutes in a row and you've never had to structure your thinking. You've never, you know, had to use a lectern or a handheld mic or whatever. I spent a long time just getting experience. And then... Again, but de-risking it because there was no money. You weren't getting paid for it. Mm. Probably the audiences are small. There's less brand reputation at risk because Mm. of those reasons. Yeah. So you you did it in small steps. Absolutely. And you I think I do it. Same as your podcast. Yeah, I think everything I've done, I don't know about other people, but at least in my experience, I find that the breaking things down into what is just the immediate next step that I can do means that I never, ever really get bogged down by the overwhelm of big decisions because they're just lots of small. It's one big decision is just 10 small decisions. So I kind of always start with the least scary thing. It meant that now looking back, you know, people are like, you get to speak to these huge, huge audiences. It's so exciting. And I'm like, yeah, but I, I've spoken to five people before. Like I've spoken at, you know, free gigs where like no one turns up or at things where, you know, there's no, you know, I just, I think you have to cut your teeth in, a, in an environment like that. And you have to practice. It's not something that necessarily like you get trusted with these big audiences straight away. So there's been a lot of cultivation. And then as once you start to get good contacts and, and you know, people who manage or, or scout for those kind of things, start to know your name, you can start to, you know, I eventually ended up getting an agent who now manages all my speaking and my brand partnerships and, you know, pretty much everything to do with all the brands. 
because the admin became too much. I'm a terrible negotiator when I was it's on my say, own it's behalf. It's much, it's much better when you've got someone like Saxons or whoever it is sitting yeah, in the middle of it yeah. who say, uh, no, her fee is. Like, yeah, and I'm they like, put I'll... up on their website with all the other people's fees, so it's just easier. Yeah, otherwise I'm like, I'll do it for one dollar. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you think, should I? And then I, I feel bad about or it. Or you ask too much and you miss out on anything. Should I am totally. asking enough or not too much? I, I and so I, I, we're, I'm running short of time. We're running short of time, and it's, it's, I'm quite fascinated by all this. But there are two things I do want to ask you. There are two things. The first thing is, I, I quickly scanned your Instagram this morning. And, uh, oh no! I'm like, yeah. what did I put on it? <laughs> and 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 I, I know you take the piss out of yourself a little bit. Um, in that uh, you'll stand there. Uh, you would like. I saw one there where you're laying there on a bikini and you're doing the fa- <laughs> the fabulous look. You know, like and everyone's going, oh wow, I want to look like her. And but then right next look. to her, then you sit, stand there showing a grumpy face or a unhappy face, whatever, and uh, the unfabulous look. If it, and what what's the what what are you trying to say there? What, what what's that about? I mean. Yeah. I don't know, you are just taking the piss out of yourself, but totally. You know, but what? But what, what? What's your real? What's your real story there? I mean, what's your real impact? Yeah. So I, th- I think once I started to build a personal profile, again, just kind of by accident, because it fell on us, uh, not through being a model or not through being someone on TV or in the public eye for you know those kinds of reasons. I think at the beginning I was quite uncomfortable that I was posting all this glamorous stuff because you only really take photos when you're out in an event yeah. or when you're dressed up. And Well, that, that's one of my things about Instagram. Everybody looks fabulous all the time and it misleads people. It's nearly, yeah. nearly not dishonest, but it is misleading without yeah. intent. It's just curated. Mm. I kind of call it, it's a curated reality. It's not that it's not real because they are genuinely going to those events and they do generally yeah. look like that. It's just very preened, like, you know, groomed and, and chosen. So I sort of thought, you know, I, I find that I get, you know, caught up in the in the throes of social comparison myself. And I, you know, don't, I'm not particularly prone to that in real life, but even I get really drawn into it, let alone all the other people who are prone to that kind of self-comparison and and it can be quite destructive. And I just started to get uncomfortable. I was like, Mm. oh, I'm not happy with like posting all this stuff about myself, which is what I'm doing, but it's 10% of the time. Guilt? Not not, Not so much guilt, but just dissonance. I was like, I'm trying to be out there being an ambassador for wellness and holistic wellness and, uh, Everything on the podcast is about showing the glamorous side of people's success, but the nitty-gritty shit stuff on in the back end and, you know, all the stuff that is very unglamorous about the day-to-day. And, I, you know, I'm very much, I'm sure you can see that my brain works very much like, what's the gap? How can I feel it? Or what's the problem? What in my life is going to make that eased? And I kind of thought, if I can start sharing the photos that I'm so uncomfortable with, like the ones that I hate and that I would never put up because they're, they're awful and I hate them and I'm uncomfortable – then A, I'll have a better relationship with the platform because suddenly my standards are just like if I lower them all the way to the bottom, the bar is so low that everything's a bonus. Secondly, I'll feel like I'm contributing to the environment in a better way. I'll I'll have a better relationship with it because people will have a better relationship with my page because I won't feel like I'm misleading them with only the good stuff. I'll feel like I'm showing all the yuck bits, like when I'm bloated to the point of like looking pregnant and everyone thinks I'm doing a pregnancy announcement because we just got married and I'm like, nope, that was my, you know, bread this morning because <laughs> I'm gluten intolerant but I ate bread anyway. You know, I felt like that was kind of my antidote to my internal feelings of discomfort and also to worrying about social media can be such an amazing platform and I think it, you know, the bushfires have just shown what a positive platform it can be when it's used the right way. But I definitely think that it's got its downsides, particularly because there's no age barrier. You know, young women are already impressionable and I ha- we had a hard enough time in our youth without social media worrying about what we look like. 
I was like, if there's a small way that I can, you know, contribute good content that makes people just snap them out of, you know, if they're scrolling and they get a reality check and realise, oh, actually, it's all okay. Like, I like to remind people that they're not seeing the whole picture. And I think also encouraging other people just to put up the stuff, like, what's the worst that can happen if you put up a bad photo? Nothing happens. If anything, you get a positive response. Um, So, yeah, I think that was my little protest against the way that even I was using it before. Uh, And now I feel like the response I get from it, I'm like, I'm, I have to, I'm going to keep doing this, even if I don't want to. I'm like, oh, I don't like that photo, but I'm like, that's one I have to put up because that, and, and that my will second, be you. I mean, I, and I, I think it's admirable in that you're providing balance. I, I get it. Um, but also sort of shows another picture, about, it tells you something else about Sarah. And you just mentioned something really important about social media, which was sort of leads into my second question. I noticed in my notes that you raised a million dollars for the bushfire pill. Is that right? Yeah, yes. yeah. So that wasn't me, get, but well, well, how, well, tell I me wish I had it. a million dollars to give. No, you didn't give it, but you <laughs> ra- you helped raise it, yeah. Yeah. How yeah. was it? How did that go? How, how did you do that? So my husband and uh, one of our very good friends, who was one of my bridesmaids, Samantha Gash, who's a ultra marathon runner, but also former lawyer. We studied together and have stayed really good friends. She was on Survivor, and she's crossed India and South Africa. We were all just sitting there thinking, you know, again, like social media, kind of can be so powerful when it agitates people to to change. And people were just starting to post these incredible photos of these terrible, terrible fires and wildlife and and but just posting pictures and not actually kind of using that to do anything because no one really knew what to do. And I think everyone kind of reached this critical point, you know, seven days in where it started to feel like, ugh, why aren't we using this for something? Why are we just keep like posting these messages? And I think all three of us are very similar in our idea that everyone has unique skills. Again, goes back to what we're talking about with business partnerships. And people feel disempowered because they're not the Celeste Barbers. They're not the, you know, Chris Hemsworth who can give a million dollars. But we realised, like, if we can just do something that uses our, you know, existing skills in a really small, specific way, that's still more than enough. That still contributes in, you know, in its, in its own unique, unique way. So Samantha being a runner... Nick being a techie and me having like the social media marketing and then uh, another one of our, our close friends, um, Ange, who works across all the businesses. Um, she's very, very good at like the community building and the um, admin coordination. We thought if we sit down and, you know, build a platform, Samantha gets a running community, Nick builds the donation platform and that you can track a global run, a virtual run. So anyone can do it from anywhere. There's no barriers. We're just collecting money and, and it goes straight to the Red Cross. Um, people are happy to help, but they just need to be directed somewhere. And I think it was very confusing at the start who you donate to and how you do it. And people just didn't want to throw money. They wanted to feel like they were doing something. So again, very, very last minute, they knocked it up. Nick did the website in like a day. Um, Samantha just did a small post to the running community. And then we all started posting, like sharing her post. And in eight days, it raised a million dollars. People just shared prolifically and... Got- where the money go? I'm, I've always sort of wondered, where, where does the money go to? Like, did the money go, did you set up a trust account or something like that? And- yeah, so because we were lawyers, we were like very careful yeah, about yeah. setting it up. And one of our other good friends is a, um, a lawyer at the Red Cross. So we made sure that, you know, it was set up in a way that the funds, 100% of the funds went directly to the Bushfire Relief, uh, the, sorry, um, Disaster Relief and Recovery Fund at Red Cross. We got Stripe, which is the payment platform to waive all the fees. So nothing went, you know, there was no admin cut taken out. Um, and it, the mechanism from the Stripe 
um, like fund that the money goes into before it gets paid out into the bank account, it went straight into the Red Cross bank account, not into any of ours. Yeah, so there was no bank fees. Yeah, there was no fees. There was no anything cut out. Um, we kind of structured it like that at the start, but expecting that it would be like twenty thousand dollars. You know, that would be that would have been a best case scenario. Like, imagine if we could get twenty, and everyone laughed and was like, "Oh God, <laughs> imagine like we'll probably get ten, but twenty would be amazing." And I think it shows a the power of social media for positive for the positive and for good if you, when it's channeled and b the fact that people just need a little nudge if you give them a platform they are so generous just not all people can create that platform they just need someone to push them towards it and once they had the platform they run with it there were 18,000 people around the world and you could run anywhere but most people did it as a community so we had i think like 200 runs all over the world there was Iraq Dubai Cuba like all these videos of runs coming through and people, you know, the, um, there was a Greek community that did an Australia thing at their school and had the kids running. Like it's just, I, for that to have spread around the world in eight days from literally two random people deciding to knock up a website and then a few of us sharing it, um, it was extraordinary. I think you're underplaying it, but yeah, but uh, you're, you're being modest. But um, I mean, <laughs> no, but, I mean it's like, a great idea and it's a great collaboration, um, to be frank with you. And um, uh, the, the, you structured it properly and I think also there was, there was a, a massive tide running in. Like uh, people wanted to donate but they didn't know how to fucking do it. Like, mm. I mean, like, well, where's the money going to go to? Like that, that was always in my mind. Like if I put my, I'm not going to give money to anybody because I don't like admin fees. Mm. I'd rather give the money direct to somebody. Yeah. Which is what I'm doing. But like I, I don't, don't like that whole idea of – so I, I was a bit confused. And um, say – you provided a solution, which is a great solution. And, and I, so I'm not, I mean, I'm, it's a million dollars a lot of dough, but I'm not surprised it was successful mm. because of the idea and the collaboration and the groups of people involved. Sarah, I, I always give everyone an opportunity to ask me one question. I don't know whether you'd have a question to ask me because you look, I sound like you've got everything <laughs> I nailed. I have so many questions to ask you. <laughs> but what, what, what question would you ask me? Oh, That's gosh. a wrap after that. Yes. Well, something that I, oh, I guess I would ask you what I love to ask everyone, which is, when you're Mark, who is not the mentor and who's not the businessman and when you don't have your business hat on, and I know you don't ascribe to the idea of work-life balance, which I actually think is admirable and really very realistic. It's more of a spectrum than a balance. What do you do outside of that identity for your joy? Like who are you when you're just playing? And do you play? Do you make time to just, you know, do stuff? Or are you always thinking? Are you always working and always thinking of business? Um, it's a good question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I thought hard about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, do I play? Uh, well, I, I do my own way. Like, um, so I'm not a, a drinker or a go down the pub type person. Um, but I do things that I enjoy. So I, it usually doesn't involve anyone or anything. It's like it's just time out my own. Mm. Um, so I have a farm, I have a garden in my home, um, I have a dog, I like to hang out with my dog. Um, I just like to I just, <laughs> yeah, I just like to be quiet and on my own. Mm. Um, I like to read. It all sounds very boring, but it's the it's polar opposite to what I normally do. Isn't it always though? So yeah. I'm just trying to completely we do talk about life balance, but I'm doing I'm not looking to do this, but it just actually balances the opposite to what I normally do every mm. day. Um, but largely 
I would say most of my life, I mean, apart from going to the gym and I mean, I'm a mad, I'm a, I'm a mad spectator of um, rugby league and boxing. I mean, they, I mean, people, someone asked me this morning, oh, you've been watching the tennis. I said, man, I don't give a shit about tennis. Um, I'm not interested in it. <laughs> I got least, my two sports and I'm done. It just doesn't, <laughs> correct. Yeah. I, and uh, I'm, it's at my sound closed minded, but I don't have enough time to do all those other things. No, you've got to be selective. So I say, okay, I'm taking these two things and these are my two things that I'm going to watch and or participate in as much as I possibly can. So um, I'm always reading and watching and talking to people about these sorts of things. So I surround myself with those people involved in those areas in my mm. life. So I'm on the board of the Sydney Roosters, which is my rugby league. I've got a lot of boxing friends and I go to, I go to most live fight nights in, in Sydney, whether they're, whether they're mm. a couple of punters or it's <laughs> just a McGregor prize fight, fight night. Pardon? The McGregor fight? The other, the no, 45 I seconds? It. I watched it, but that's UFC. I'm more boxing. Yeah, um, but okay. I do like, watch. I did watch that McGregor thing, but didn't, wasn't worth the $45 <laughs> to pay for it. <laughs> it was 45 um, seconds. <laughs> correct. It was a dollar a second. But uh, yeah, so I do that. And But uh, generally speaking, everything is about my work, mm. generally speaking. But I've, because I've got enough things going on similar to yourself that um, that's my pastime. That's mm. my hobby. And mm. uh I do it because I enjoy doing it. I, sometimes I wonder whether I enjoy doing it, whether it's just because I'm doing it um, that I'm enjoying it. Yeah, that's as interesting. As opposed to enjoy doing it. Um, I pretty much enjoy whatever it is I do. I was similarly brought up in my family to you in that I was always had a lot of things to do. So in my household, um, I, we always had to – we're either – practicing our piano um, for a piano exam that might be coming up, my brother and myself and my sister. Or um, I was in, in a pool and my brother was in a pool my sw- sister was in the pool swimming, like training because we, 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 we swam at sort of quite high levels in co- com- competitively and or um, I played rugby league at all, all various levels, um, you know, representative football. Um, so I was – and then I was really competitive at school. So – I was always doing some shit, like getting up in the morning at 4.30, go swim training, come home, do my piano practice, then I'll go to a lesson, then go to school, come home from school, go to football training, and I was playing for two teams, so a rep team and a school team, and then I started playing for a local team. So yeah, that was my life. Mm. And I don't know, I think it becomes imprinted on the way you live your life for the rest of your life. And I did that from like eight or nine or ten right through to I was went to university. So I've always done lots of things. So I've never really said, I've said, oh, well, this is Friday night. Friday night to me is an entitlement night that a lot of people talk about. I've got to have my Friday night off. I don't believe that. Friday night to me is the same as Monday night. It's no different. It's just a night. I mean, I, but I know people who say, no, it's Friday night. I'll get out of the pub uh, and I've got to get pissed. Or it's Saturday night. You know, it's, no, Saturday nights, so I've got to go out. I don't take that view. I'm happy to go to bed at 9 p.m. on Saturday night so I can wake up early Sunday morning. That's my favorite way to spend Saturday night. And go to the gym. Night. And have breakfast with my mates or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So. I'm a grandma before my time, like yeah. for sure. Well, I'm a grandpa. I actually am a grandpa. <laughs> yeah, well, you have a reason though. In my I time. have no excuse. I've got a two-year-old grandson. But, 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 but like, it, it's, it's, that's how I, that's how I, that's what I do outside of what I do in work, mm. for, my, for what I call my work. That's so interesting. So, um, yeah, I, I try to think different. I try, I, I, no, I don't try to think differently. Um, I don't accept the way other people think. Yeah. I don't accept that that type of discipline, but I also have my own discipline. So mm. I'm, I'm equally conforming to my own discipline as other people are conforming to their discipline, just that I make sure that my discipline is different. And that it works for you. And it works for me. It suits yeah. me. And it is something that's evolved. I never sat around like you did. I was nowhere near as analytical as you. I did a lot of things similar to you, but 
I don't tend to, I tend not to analyze it. I tend to just say, fuck it, I'm doing it. Yeah. And uh, I don't care whether it's a big risk, small risk, medium risk. I don't look at the risk. I just go and do it. But but not too dissimilar to what you're talking about. Mm. Um, for example, you know, talking on the, do, doing talks, I do talk quite a lot of uh, speeches. Um, you're with Saxon as well, right? Yeah, I'm with Saxon yeah. as well. So I do quite a lot of speeches, but I never... They approached me origi- originally. Mm. I never sort of said, I'm going to start doing these things for free. Mm. Um, they come and saw me. There's, oh, you didn't have to do the free bit. No, no. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> Nanette, Nanette came and saw me in the days of Nanette and uh, and and her husband, who, who unfortunately passed away, but uh, Winston, um, they come and approached me and said, Would you, could you come onto our books? So, but, uh, and I had no idea what what to do. I had never made a speech. I didn't have a clue how to do it. <laughs> and I just went and did one and and I got paid for it. So I, I But I never thought about the risk. Yeah. Uh, you, you are much more analytical than I am, and I'm I like it's a female I, thing. Maybe. It's a mass generalization. Well, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm like a, that with everything I do, though. I just yeah. uh, that's something I think I can do. Mm-hmm. I quickly see if I've got the skills, then I have a crack. If it doesn't work, I don't give a shit. Amazing. I, I think you care. have to have a risk appetite, and not otherwise you just end up in paralysis. Of like I'm not sure paralysis. if I've got a risk appetite. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Or just like a risk, you're just risk neutral, like it just doesn't even hit you. Yeah, like I mean, like when I was young, I'm sort of person who would someone say to me, "Let's climb up on the roof of that building." I would do it. I wouldn't think about it. Yeah. I'd just climb up the roof, and twice I fell through roofs. <laughs> Actually, fell through roofs, and uh, I did it. When one of my sons oh, that explains a lot. <laughs> one of my sons, one of my sons was getting uh, christened, and I invited my best mate who lived up in um, Byron Bay to come down. He, best mate from school, he lived up there, and uh, he came down. He he couldn't get there to my house at three p.m. And uh, it was my second eldest son was getting christened. And uh, and um, um, I rang my brother up and I said, listen, everyone's come around the house. I'm gonna, let's make a barbecue. So come around at six in the morning. We'll put a lamb on the spit. And Adrian came around, my brother, and we six in the morning we started um, drinking wine, red wine. I'm having a bottle of red wine up, drinking red wine because you've got a lamb on the spit. You've got to drink, have a glass of red wine in your hand. Six a.m. I don't know why that was. Anyway, <laughs> by the time, um, by about two o'clock, um, my house, my house. I was thinking about putting a, another level on it, and uh, because just to look at the views. And I was telling my brother about. It, I was all excited, and, and I say, "Man, the views are fantastic!" And uh, I remember climbing up on the roof. I had a few to drink. I climbed on the roof and went straight through the roof, and opened oh, up my legs, no. bleeding everywhere. I passed out. I lost so much blood. And my mate who's coming down to, um, to, to my my son's um, christening. I passed out and I never woke up again until the next day. I missed out seeing my mate. I missed out on seeing everything. <laughs> It's a great advertisement for so, just r- risking so, it and not. <laughs> so I, I, I was, I was pretty. I was a lot younger then, but I would do sort of mad shit like that. So, mm. um, you know, I had, I had no problem with climbing up on anything mm. and and or jumping or seeing if I can go the highest. And uh, so I wasn't. I didn't analyze risk. Today I'm much more defensive because I'm mm. a lot older mm. and I'm not as agile. Um, you know, lots of ways. Not just in terms of climbing, but so, <laughs> yeah, so the top of the building. So, hey, Mark. <laughs> but, but but I must say, when I was your age, I was a risk taker, mm. and I'm just lucky that a lot of the risks I took Went didn't down. turn around to bite bite me on the ass. I'm just lucky, risks in all sorts of ways, and uh, so there's a lot of luck involved in some of my successes. A lot of luck. Um, to me, it sounds like you're much more analytical than me. I feel like there's probably also, I mean, their risks, but they were probably like mildly calculated. I think there's yeah. probably luck, but then I think there's also probably I, I calculated more in the back of your head. Yeah, you it was realize. calculated, but I, I, so I knew my ability. I knew I could climb, for example. Yeah. I knew I was agile and I was, I was strong enough to get up the top of the tree or whatever it is I was climbing. But 
most people wouldn't do it, um, and I wouldn't certainly certainly wouldn't do it. No, I'd be filthy if any of my kids wanted to do it, or my grandson ever became that way. Or <laughs> someone beyond so unhappy. But anyway, well, now they're l- going to listen to this and it, get permissions. So. Le- it's less less about me. This is all about you. I really appreciate you coming in today. You've done a great job in all your your endeavours. I, I I think you're amazing for someone so young. Oh, that's very kind. I, I really do believe Thank that. Thank you. And. Uh, but also to all your team and your partners and your, your husband. You're doing a great job. Continue on. Um, and for me, when I mean, you're only 30 or 31 or something. For me, I'd hate to think between here and 40 that you don't double down, double down and keep doubling down. <laughs> because I would love to see you or hear from you in 10 years' time and see what the fuck you've done. Like, you're going to do something great. So continue on. Yeah. It's been fantastic. And you've inspired a lot of people. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.